So Second Chronicles chapter 13, and starting at verse 1. Now in the 18th year of King Jeroboam began Abijah to reign over Judah. He reigned three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name also was Micaiah, the daughter of Uriel of Gibeah. And there was war between Abijah and Jeroboam, and Abijah set the battle in array with an army of valiant men of war, even 400,000 chosen men. Jeroboam also set the battle in array against him, with 800,000 chosen men, being men of valor. And Abijah stood up upon Mount Semaraim, which is in Mount Ephraim, and said, Hear me thou, Jeroboam, and all Israel. Ought ye not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingdom over Israel to David forever, even to him and to his sons, by covenant of salt? Yet Jeroboam the son of Nebat, the servant of Solomon the son of David, is risen up and hath rebelled against his Lord. And there are gathered unto him vain men, the children of Belial, and have strengthened themselves against Rehoboam the son of Solomon, when Rehoboam was young and tender-hearted, and could not withstand them. And now ye think to withstand the kingdom of the Lord in the hand of the sons of David? And ye be a great multitude, and there are with you golden calves, which Jeroboam made you for gods. Have ye not cast out the priests of the Lord, the sons of Aaron, and the Levites, and have made you priests after the manner of the nations of other lands? So that whosoever cometh to consecrate himself with a young bullock and seven rams, the same may be a priest of them that are no gods. But as for us, the Lord is our God, and we have not forsaken him, and the priests which minister unto the Lord are the sons of Aaron, and the Levites wait upon their business, and they burn unto the Lord every morning and every evening burnt sacrifices and sweet incense. The showbread also set they in order upon the pure table, and the candlestick of gold with the lamps thereof, to burn every evening. For we keep the charge of the Lord our God, but ye have forsaken him. And behold, God himself is with us for our captain, and his priests with sounding trumpets to cry alarm against you, O children of Israel, fight ye not against the Lord God of your fathers, for ye shall not prosper. But Jeroboam caused an ambushment to come about behind them. So they were before Judah, and the ambushment was behind them. And when Judah looked back, behold, the battle was before and behind. And they cried unto the Lord, and the priests sounded with the trumpets. Then the men of Judah gave a shout, and as the men of Judah shouted, it came to pass that God smote Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. And the children of Israel fled before Judah, and God delivered them into their hand. And Abijah and his people slew them with a great slaughter. So there fell down slain of Israel five hundred thousand chosen men. Thus the children of Israel were brought under at that time, and the children of Judah prevailed, because they relied upon the Lord God of their fathers. And Abijah pursued after Jeroboam, and took cities from him, Bethel with the towns thereof, and Jeshana with the towns thereof, and Ephraim with the towns thereof. Neither did Jeroboam recover strength again in the days of Abijah, and the Lord struck him, and he died. But Abijah waxed mighty, and married fourteen wives, and begat twenty and two sons and sixteen daughters. And the rest of the acts of Abijah and his ways and his sayings are written in the story of the prophet Iddo. 
I'm also going to quickly read from the book of 1 Kings, chapter 15, which is the parallel passage about this king. So 1 Kings 15, verse 1 says, Now in the eighteenth year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, reigned Abijam over Judah. Three years reigned he in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Maacah, the daughter of Abishalom. And he walked in all the sins of his fathers, which he had done before him. And his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father. Nevertheless, for David's sake, did the Lord his God give him a lamp in Jerusalem, to set up his son after him, and to establish Jerusalem. Because David did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord, and turned not aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, save only in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life. Now the rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam. And Abijam slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. And Asa his son reigned in his stead. Let us pray. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, you have given us these words, your words, many thousands of years ago, and yet you have given them to us. You have given them that we might be edified in them, that we might see your majesty, your greatness, your sovereignty in all these acts, that we might learn to trust you, and ultimately that we might see that you are a God that keeps covenant, that has kept covenant, and has done so in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ, the Son of David, who was that King that did truly walk after the Lord all his days. And help us to see Christ in these passages, to see Christ in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in all of your word. And allow the riches of Christ to truly infuse us this morning that we might have greater and greater affections for him that we might love him because he has first loved us and that that might be a reality for each of us I pray that you would bless this sermon that way in Jesus name I pray all these things amen so these passages from Chronicles and Kings discuss the reign of King Abijah He's also known as King Abijam, and we'll get to that in a bit, because he has two names. It's important. His father was Rehoboam, who in turn was the son of Solomon, who was the son of David. Now Solomon, his wives, led him into idolatry. As a punishment, ten of the twelve tribes, the northern tribes, were taken away from the throne of David and given to Jeroboam. And this happened after the death of Solomon. Rehoboam treated the people very harshly and that led to them going after Jeroboam the son of Nebat now when that happened there was a prophet who forbade Rehoboam from trying to crush Israel militarily and that was because God's judgment had to be done Rehoboam was forced to keep Israel independent now back to Abijah 
he grew up in the second half of Solomon's reign. He was in his 20s when his father was forced to pay a very heavy tribute to Egypt. All that to say, he remembered Solomon's reign. He remembered the splendor, the riches. And he remembered how it all went away because of Solomon's folly. Now, Abijah's mother was called Maacah or Micaiah. It says that she's the daughter of Absalom or Abshalom. That's a little bit confusing, though. If you look in 1 Samuel 14.27, it says, quote, And unto Absalom there were born three sons and one daughter, whose name was Tamar. She was a woman of a fair countenance. So it says Tamar, not Maacah. So where did she come in? Now, what is interesting is that Absalom's mother is named Mayaka, and we see in ancient cultures, they liked to name their children after their ancestors. So, did Absalom have a second daughter that's not mentioned in the text? Was it a different Absalom? Or was Mayaka Absalom's granddaughter? Because there is precedence for that in the Bible as well. They do say daughter or father when someone's a grandchild or a grandparent. It's also mentioned that Maaca is the daughter of Uriel of Gibeah. Now, Gibeah is also interesting because Saul came from Gibeah. Interesting connections there. So if we piece this all together, it seems that Absalom's daughter, Tamar, married Uriel of Gibeah, and they had a daughter, Maaca. Now, what's the importance of this? What does this mean? We see that Rehoboam married the family of Absalom and quite possibly the family of Saul. Now, Rehoboam had been warned by Solomon not to marry foreign women, not to repeat his mistake. So he only married royal women from Judah and Israel, yes. So this shows us that Abijah had very royal parents on both sides. But we also know from reading in Kings and Chronicles, that both parents did not follow the ways of the Lord. And in 1 Kings, we see that this is a pattern that was continued in Abijah's life. It talks about how he walked in all the sins of his fathers. It seems that he may well have nominally worshipped Jehovah and personally been faithful to him. In 2 Chronicles 15, 18, it talks about how he dedicated some spoils of war to the temple. But it seems he did nothing to stop the idolatry of Judah. And that was the problem. And now this is why he has two names. The name Abijah means, my father is the Lord. The name Abijam means, my father is the sea. The sea in Jewish thought is a place of restlessness. It's unstable. It talks about how Abijah is tossed around like a wave. It's a place of darkness and terror. That's why in Revelation, in the New Kingdom, there is no more sea. There is no more darkness. And it's interesting. The passage in Chronicles we're looking at talks about the positive side of Abijah, and then uses the name Abijah. And the passage in Kings talks about his negative side, and uses the name Abijah. Now, the punishment for an idolatrous king like Abijah 
should be total destruction on your line and devastation for your kingdom. This is what happened with the Canaanites. God completely wiped them out. And this is what should happen for these kings. And this is what happened to Israel, ultimately. We saw Assyria invaded, took them all captive, and there has been no Israelite kingdom since. They've essentially been wiped off the map. It didn't happen in Judah, though, and that's because of God's special covenant promise to David. A commentator, Albert Barnes, here notes, Few things are more remarkable and more difficult to account for on mere grounds of human reason than the stability of the succession in Judah and its excessive instability in the sister kingdom, which is Israel. One family in Judah holds the throne from first to last during a space of little short of four centuries. While in Israel, there are nine changes of dynasty within 250 years. And what we see here looking at kings again is that while David had sinned grievously with the matter of Uriah, it wasn't the sin of idolatry. That was the fundamental pillar of Israelite society, that God was their king. And David did not violate that. And he did repent of that sin. And thus, God, in mercy, did preserve David's line. Indeed, it's only God's mercy, in a similar sense, that's preserved the church, despite the sin and the folly of every generation of Christians. And now looking at our text proper, it says, there is war between Abijah and Jeroboam. This is from Chronicles again. In 1 Kings 15, we see that the same thing had happened in his father's reign. There was constant warfare then. Israel and Judah were constantly bickering on the border at border skirmishes. They could not live at peace with each other. But at the same time, the war that we see in Chronicles is a bit different. This time, a proper campaign had happened. The army had crossed the border. It's right at the beginning of Abijah's reign. It's when he's most vulnerable. But it's also when he wants a great victory so that he can cement his kingship. Now, some sources think that Jeroboam started the war. Others think that Abijah did. We're not totally sure. But in any case, what we do see is that Abijah is not a coward. He sends his army into the battlefield. We also see, if you look at the numbers, Judah is outnumbered 2 to 1, 400,000 to 800,000. So Jeroboam has every reason to feel very confident about how this battle is going to go. And so often, even today, the wicked seem to overwhelm God's people. They think the victory is already in the bag. As an example today, many think secularization will end religion and particularly Christianity. It's inevitable. In their arrogance, they think the fact that Christianity has declined in the West means that A, Christians are backward, and B, eventually they'll just completely disappear from the globe. They'll just be something in the history textbooks. But in fact, we know that history has already been written by God. We know that secularism will be vanquished 
and God, even now, will preserve a remnant for himself. So if you're someone who's discouraged by the apathy, the wickedness that you see around you, take comfort in this, that God always wins. Now Abijah does have every reason to be frightened to back away from this battle when he's outnumbered two to one. Jeroboam's men also aren't just some ragtag militia he just kind of scraped together. No, they're called chosen men. They're men of valor. They're his best soldiers. So this is looking more and more like a suicide mission. And why would anybody in their right mind volunteer for this or go to this battle? But Abijah does the right thing. He does fight the battle. He's king. And that means that he is called by God to protect and to lead his people. He's not allowed to be a coward. And he fulfills his obligation as the king of God's chosen people. And so, too, we are called to be faithful in this very lamentable culture. We're not allowed to be cowards. Are you afraid to share your faith to your co-workers because you think they're going to mock you? If you hear that your boss is kind of playing the numbers a bit at work, and you know it's wrong, will you say something? Are you unwilling to confront someone who claims to be a Christian but is living in obvious sin because it's uncomfortable? We are called to be faithful wherever God has placed us. And now as these armies in Chronicles are moving onto the battlefield, Abijah first makes a speech. And this is quite common in ancient battles. Both sides usually first get a chance to lambast the other side and to show how good they are. They're going to try to demoralize the other side's armies and motivate their own. And a truce is likely arranged in this case so that Abijah can get onto the mountain in the middle of the two armies. And this mountain, Zemaraim, is fairly close to Bethel. That's a town just across the border from Judah. Now, Abijah's, Abijah's audience is both Jeroboam and Israel. He's hoping to prick Jeroboam's conscience, but he also wants defections from Israel. Now, he starts by reminding them of the covenant that God made with David. The covenant that meant that the family of David would have the throne forever. It's called a covenant of salt. That's kind of a strange word. Why salt? Well, we know that salt is a preservative. That it makes things stay good indefinitely. And so a covenant of salt is a perpetual covenant. One that continues. Just as surely as salt will never lose its saltiness. And so this promise to David is preserved just as salt preserves meat. And we can see, looking ahead in history, that this promise was kept. Jesus, the son of David, is actively reigning today. 
So are some of you feeling discouraged this morning? Maybe you don't know what the future holds for you. Maybe it's the fact that your health isn't improving. It seems to be getting worse, if anything. Maybe you're finding it tough to scrape together enough money to pay your bills, even though you're working as hard as you possibly can. Or maybe it's not particularly any of these, but you're really burdened by your sin this morning, just realizing that a little bit deeper yet again. And whatever it is that's discouraging you this morning, don't look to your circumstances. The people of Judah couldn't do that. They couldn't look around them. What we have to do is look to God's promises, just like they did. We know that Christ has already won the victory. Your trials are simply temporary. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Hold on to that promise. Now we see that Abijah moves on from God's covenant with David to the treachery of Jeroboam. Jeroboam is called the son of Nebat. Who's Nebat? Nobody knows him. He's a nobody. He's called the servant of Solomon. That's an insult. He's somewhere way down in the list of bureaucrats. He's not someone important. Abijah is showing his contempt for Jeroboam here. Abijah accuses him of high treason. He rebelled against his lord. He says he had just used a band of thugs to steal the kingdom. And this happened when Rehoboam was, quote, young and tender-hearted. This doesn't actually mean that Rehoboam was in his teens or his 20s or something. He was roughly in his 40s when he became king. What it refers to is the fact that Rehoboam was just on the kingdom, that he was inexperienced. He was easily swayed. In a sense, Abijah almost covers up for his father here because Rehoboam wasn't that tender-hearted, actually. The reason they rebelled is because he was way too harsh with them, and he wanted to crush them militarily. He wanted to send an army and force them back. So it's not so much that Rehoboam could not withstand Jeroboam as that he wasn't allowed to from the prophet. God needed to have his judgment executed for Solomon's sin. And now, next in this speech, Abijah moves from the past to the present. Now you think you can attack God's kingdom? Attack David's line? Do you think your massive army, your idols, are invincible? And notice the phrase that he uses the idols which Jeroboam made for gods. In Judah's case, it was God that made the king. In Israel's case, it's the king that made the gods. How can you rely on a god? How can you trust them when they depend on someone else for their existence? Someone else had to make them. In verse 9, Abijah notes that what is, that Israel lost what made them unique as a people. They lost their relation to Jehovah. 
They abandoned his covenant. They kicked out the priests and Levites. They set up their own gods, their own priesthood. They've become just like the other nations. And they will be treated like such. They lost God's protection and they will ultimately face destruction. And which of these other nations is around today? Is anyone still worshipping Baal or Zeus or any of these other gods? God destroyed all of these nations, just like he did the northern kingdom. In Israel, according to Abijah, you could buy a priesthood. It just cost you one bull and seven rams. Now in Exodus 29, where God sets forth the ritual for the consecration of a priest, you have to sacrifice one bull and two rams every day for seven days. So that's seven bulls and 14 rams. So Israel isn't even pretending to sort of keep up any sort of God's tradition, God's law. They just make it up as they go. Now, in contrast with Israel's blatant idolatry, Abijah says, But as for us, the Lord is our God, and we have not forsaken him. And the priests which minister unto the Lord are the sons of Aaron, and the Levites wait upon their business. Now, it's certainly true that the Levitical and the priestly functions did continue in Judah. We know that. The elites continued to say that God was their deity. And this whole statement is very admirable. It's an admirable statement of faith. It's kind of like Joshua 24 where it says, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But the sad truth is that this wasn't completely true in Judah. Or for Abijah for that matter. While Abijah may not have personally worshipped other gods, he turned a blind eye to what his people were doing. He was not, in his kingly role, a good shepherd for his people in that way. And how true a lesson is that for us today? Because there are many people who very piously, very sincerely go to church and profess their faith, but they have glaring sin and hypocrisy in their life that they do nothing about. And sometimes it's not quite so obvious They may sit at the front of the church and host a Bible study. In some cases, they might be an elder. They might preach. But they may never know the Lord. And because of that, it is so important that we as the body of Christ hold each other accountable to our profession of faith. When someone says they're a Christian, you have to confront them. Are you living that out? And at the same time, I can talk on and on about they being pious, they being hypocrites. But is that you? Do you claim to be a Christian? But are you only going through the motions? Feeling no real affection for Jesus Christ? Is this simply something you do because you're more moral than others? You're better than them. Or can you truly say 
that as for you, the Lord is your God, and you have not forsaken him. And that was the claim of Abijah. And he then goes on to describe in detail how the Levitical rituals continued in Judah. The sacrifice and the incense do not cease. The showbread and golden candlesticks are renewed. The moral of the story is that we, as in Judah, keep the charge of the Lord our God. But ye have forsaken him. And why does all of this matter in the context of a battle? Isn't it just whoever has the better army wins? No. We know that God promises judgment on those who forsake him. We saw recently how Israel recited the blessings and the curses on Mount Ebel and Mount Gerizim in Joshua's time. And these curses will now fall on Israel because they forsook God. And instead, Abijah says, Judah will be blessed for keeping God's ways. And the thing is, though, that Abijah is not correct there, as we just discussed. Because Judah, sure, had the temple rituals, but it also allowed for that idolatry, and that syncretism is just as bad as the idolatry of Israel. Judah should also be judged, and it wasn't simply because of David's promise. And now in verse 12, we see Abijah is getting to the climax of his speech. You can almost hear him shouting, God himself is our captain. We have his priests to prove how faithful we are and how rebellious you are because you don't have any of his priests anymore. You kicked them out. And he ends by pleading with Israel. O children of Israel, fight ye not against the Lord God of your fathers, for ye shall not prosper. And he is entirely correct on that point. Because if Israel had listened to him, 500,000 of them would not have died. And so it is with all of us. It never pays to fight God. And that can be in big ways, that fighting. You can think of dictators. You can think of murderers, eugenicists, abortionists. It can also be in smaller ways. It can be your neighbor who's always mocking Christianity and Christians. Or that colleague who's blaspheming God's name every day. Or it's in even smaller ways. It's that sin, that little sin, that we, as Christians, continue to allow, that we continue to fall into. And in every case, these sins do not prosper. Even in this life, there are often negative consequences down the road. We see in Proverbs, Evil pursueth sinners, but to the righteous, good shall be repaid. We see sins catching up to you, and finally leading to death. However, even for that unbeliever who's constantly sinning and still looks like they have the perfect life, they have no consequences, that very sin, those sins, will still have consequences for them. 
ultimately in hell. But even on this world, even if they look perfect, they cannot have true rest. They will never have a clean conscience. They can't have any lasting happiness in all these pleasures that they're sinning for. Because all of these things can't be found by fighting God. Because they're only found in Him. So when you're struggling with sin or guilt, don't hide from God, but run to Him. When you're seeing your coworkers living in sin, point them to God. And live out that true happiness as only the Christian can. And if you know someone who is suffering the consequences of their sin, show them the love and the compassion of Jesus who came for sinners. And sadly, Israel did not listen to what Abijah said. While Abijah was speaking, Jeroboam secretly sends a detachment of soldiers around their army to surround them. This is treachery. He broke a truce to get advantage in that battle. It's dishonorable. So Jeroboam here is thinking, you can trust your God. I'll trust my strategy and my tricks. And so often the world is just thinking exactly the same way. They'll trust in their web of lies and deception to get what they want. The ends justify the means. A perfect example of this is all the medical breakthroughs we have because of research on aborted babies. Look at this miracle drug. Sure, it comes from abortion, but look at all the good we're doing with it. God is not mocked. He wrote his laws into the fabric of this universe, into the conscience of every man, and wickedness will never go unpunished. And Judah does recognize this fact at this point in the narrative, and they resort to their last defense. Militarily, they're hopeless. Politically, their speech did nothing. In that speech, they had said they trusted God. But now it's the moment of truth. Do they really? It's easy to say we believe when the times are good. But it's when you're hit with that terminal diagnosis. Or with a relationship on the rocks. Then, do you still rely on him? Judah, in this case, makes that claim of trust reality for them. They cry unto the Lord. They shout out loud their dependence on him. They have the priests blowing the trumpets. The leaders of Judah are crying out to boost the morale of their army, sure, but also as a statement that they are trusting God. They depend on him. It takes divine intervention at this point to win. And the whole nation here is united in calling on him. And what do we see in the text? God hears the cry of his people. While they're still shouting, they haven't even finished praying, as it were. God causes a panic to go through the camp of Israel. Suddenly, everyone's fleeing the battle. 
And then we see Judah slaughtering, but it's really God that brought the victory. And this is true in our life. We work. We really work. But it is ultimately God that brings deliverance, God that brings the victories in our life. He is always there to deliver us from sin when we cry unto him. He will not allow us to be lost. And when we're going through the trials and tribulations, he will either rescue us outright from them, or he will give us the strength to bear in them. He gives us what we need for each day. He knows our every need and our every care. So if you're going through a really difficult time, if you don't know how you're going to make it through another week, if your whole world seems to be crashing around you, if you're struggling with the temptation to greed or lust or pride or whatever it is, that's just hitting you especially hard. Or if you're just struggling with the daily grind of life, struggling with work and school and parenting and relationships and sinful nature, in every case, God will deliver you. He will bear you up. He will strengthen you. He will support you. He will save you. This is what it means, Christian, to be in a covenant with God. Just as God kept his covenant with David, he confirmed that in this passage, and he finally completed that in Christ. So he will keep this covenant with you, believer, as one united in Christ, who is the greater David. And take comfort in that reality. This passage in Chronicles now finishes by discussing the aftermath of the battle. When all the dust has settled, what do you see? 500,000 Israelites perished in that campaign. That's a staggering number. 500,000 souls. That's half of Edmonton. And some people here say that these numbers are way too high. There's no way you can believe that. This is in ancient times. But at the same time, we know that God's word is reliable. And these numbers correspond exactly to the size of the army. They correspond exactly to the numbering we had under David. So God's word here, again, is entirely reliable. And what we see here is that God doesn't just give a small victory. He gives a great victory. And the only reason Israel here isn't conquered completely by Abijah is because God had split that kingdom. But it was crippled. The slaughter and the bitter civil war meant that there was no chance of Israel and Judah reuniting. It wasn't going to happen. Because you see, one side has, had lost sons and family in the battle to the other side. It's a civil war, the hate there. What we do see, though, is that border towns like Bethel, Deshanna, and Ephraim were taken. And Bethel's an interesting case because that's where one of Jeroboam's two idols was, the golden calf. And it's mentioned again later 
in Israel's history. So it wasn't destroyed. We don't know what happened to it. Either Jeroboam took it away right before Bethel was captured, or did Abijah keep it there and prove why he wasn't ultimately king after God's eyes, a good king after God's eyes. We don't know. What we do see here is that just as Israel had lost its strength, so did Jeroboam. He was mortally wounded after this battle. Not in the sense that he died next week. He lived several years longer than Abijah. But God had struck him. And this trick of his, instead of giving him the victory, led to his defeat and to his death. And this isn't because of Abijah and Abijah being so clever. This is all because of God. And the fate of Jeroboam is contrasted with what happened to Abijah. Abijah's line is secure. His progeny is considerable. He has plenty of kids. And the final verse in this chapter describes where the story comes from. It's the prophet Iddo. What we see here is that the compiler of the Chronicles, the person who put this all together, used earlier primary sources. And that really just speaks to how we know that God uses human means in his writing of the scriptures. Now, looking back at this passage, what are the main lessons for 21st century Christians without Jewish heritage? Why does this matter? We see here God's covenant faithfulness. We see that God hears those who call on him. And we see the need for a better king. Because as great as Abijah's victory was, it didn't change the long-term trend. Judah and Israel continued to fight and to bicker until foreign powers ultimately conquered both of them. What both Judah and Israel needed was not military victory or a change in circumstance. What they needed was victory over the sinful heart. And Abijah couldn't do that. In fact, his own heart wasn't even right with God. So, are you here this morning, like Abijah, trusting in your religiosity to save him? Or, do you trust in a better king than Abijah? Do you trust in a king of David's line, yes, who not only defeats the forces of evil, but defeats the evil of the human heart. God keeps his covenant promises. He provided the son who took on human nature and David's line to redeem his covenant people by sacrificing himself for them. Have you trusted in this Christ? Though you have sinned greatly and gone after many idols of the heart, he is able to deliver you. Just as surely as God, defeat, as God gave Judah the victory over their temporal circumstances, over that wickedness of Israel, he is able to save you from spiritual darkness. Do not wait, though. Israel had one last chance. And so may you.
And for those of you who have put your trust in Christ, remember this. He won the battle. He will soon return to consummate his victory over evil. God will destroy wickedness even more completely than he destroyed the Israelite army. God always wins. God is victorious. Amen. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, you are truly a great God. You are the God of angel armies. You are the God of all strength, of all wisdom, of all power, of all might, and of all comfort, of all grace, of all mercy. And we thank you truly for keeping that promise that you made to David. And indeed, you have kept all your promises. The promise that there would be a seed to crush the serpent. The promise of deliverance. The promise of hope, not only for Abraham's seed, but for those from every tongue and tribe and people of nation, that you might graft them in into your people of Israel, that you might have one people for yourself. And so I pray that we all might find ourselves united in Christ and united with your great body of believers, and that we may long for the new Jerusalem where we may see Christ face to face, where we may see your total victory over evil, where evil will be vanquished and be no more. And I pray that you would help us in our circumstances. We see the effects of sin all around us. We see the effect of sin in our own hearts. And I pray that you would give us strength to resist sin, to look after the things of you, to look after Christ, that he might be ever more precious to us, even in this week. In the name of that great conqueror, in the name of your son Jesus, I pray all these things. Amen.